Hey Irish fans, Alex Painter here from Onward to Victory to remind you that if you or your company has screen printing or embroidery needs, look no further than our pals at wcscreens.com. Nationwide shipping? Check. Wholesale pricing? You got it. They are indeed the gold standard of the industry. And fervent supporters of Onward to Victory and your fighting Irish. Give them a holler at wcscreens.com. And on with the show. When I group these words together, head coach conversions, you may be thinking about third or fourth down conversions. Totally fair. This is a football podcast after all. But this is a different kind of conversion. In mid-September of 2022, it was announced that Irish head coach Marcus Freeman had in fact converted to Catholicism, obviously a core tenet and characteristic of the University of Notre Dame. Would you have guessed that he actually wasn't the first head coach at Notre Dame to convert to the prevailing spiritual identity of the campus? Would you guess that it had been 97 years, though, since it happened last? Got another great story for you here today, so buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Irish fans and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter and this is episode number 74 of the most exhaustive, accessible source of Notre Dame football history since 2019. I've got a great, interesting slice of Irish lore for you today and I think this is one of those episodes that Onward to Victory is actually uniquely situated to discuss and share about. But... First, have you listened to episode 73 yet? I'm not sure how much the general population knows about former Irish quarterback John Hewitt, Notre Dame's sixth Heisman Trophy winner from 1964. In case you didn't know, this man came out of virtual thin air, actually, to win the Heisman, college football's most esteemed honor that season, and at a time when Notre Dame football needed a hero. Seriously. The anecdote that kept me up at night and (laughs) really proves that point is that Hewitt did indeed come out of virtual nowhere, and spoiler alert, he actually won a Heisman Trophy before he was awarded a varsity letter from the university. It is without hyperbole that I still think about this fairly often. It's one of those mind-blowing things. But go give it a listen, and Hewitt was actually groundbreaking in many respects, so again, Go give episode 73 a listen. So before we jump into episode here 74, I'd like to offer some very special thank yous to those folks who donate to the show and keep it powering. Yes, I am talking about those consensus All-Americans. And they include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, 
Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, and Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana. Eternally grateful for every last one of you, and I am serious, the show wouldn't be able to continue without these folks' generous support, both past and present. And a very special thank you again to WCScreens.com, our banner sponsor for yet another year here in 2023. And just know that if you'd like to get your name called out as a Consensus All-American yourself, feel free to visit the virtual tip jars at either paypal.me slash onwardtovictory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast for ongoing monthly support. And please know that all of it is greatly appreciated. I'd also like to give yet another special thank you to show pal Joseph Rakish. It's his song, Knut Rockney. That serves as the show's theme song has today and has actually since, well, the very, very beginning. So check that song out as well as his whole catalog on Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Music, wherever. It's out there for y'all to listen to. And my younger brother Colton has actually requested it at Irish Tailgates in South Bend on Football Saturdays. It's out there, man, so please support our guy. Now, this is the first episode of 2023. And just to tease a few episode ideas coming down the pike, I have a fifth installment of the Notre Dame and the Civil War series I'm working through. One about the seven mules. Now, everyone knows about the four horsemen, but what about the seven mules? And uh, I have a great one brewing about some interesting Notre Dame baseball tidbits for baseball spring training, a special first-hand account and retelling of my time in South Bend during the Clemson upset this past season, and one specifically about a Notre Dame quarterback, the winningest signal caller in program history. For some of you, that might be enough of a clue to know who the episode is about, but that's just a few. So make sure you like and subscribe the podcast to the podcast, I should say, to ensure that you're being alerted to all the newest offerings. Now, this particular episode, I have to give the assist to listener and supporter, Andy Nickel. He sent me an email a few months back, probably not long after the kind of inciting event, so to speak, happened. And he kind of got the brainwaves going, uh, working towards this one. So thanks a lot, Andy. I appreciate it. All right, so it was widely announced roughly, let's say September 15th, 2022, that Notre Dame head coach Marcus Freeman had, in fact, converted to Catholicism. For those who have been around the show for a while, you may already know this, but I was raised and am Catholic myself. And one of those big Catholic families, actually, as I am the second oldest in a brood of 10 children. So I will absolutely cop to the fact that the Catholic aspect of Notre Dame is a major draw for me. And for many others, it could be the fact that the school, again, puts religion and spirituality in the forefront, even if they aren't Catholic themselves. But when I heard that Coach Freeman had converted, I kind of did a yes. (laughs) But I'd, of course, be remiss not to mention that Notre Dame is, of course, a place for people of all religious faiths or those who don't practice any religious faith at all. Lest we forget that Ara Parsegian himself was an Armenian Presbyterian. 
So just a quick aside, Era, aside from not being Catholic, was an interesting hire at the time because he was only the second Notre Dame head coach that hadn't attended the school since 1917. So if you can imagine when Era was hired, there were some serious eyebrows raised. Anyway, I was drawn to this, and I suppose Andy was as well, because of the strong parallel between Coach Marcus Freeman in converting to Catholicism and a certain other legendary Irish head coach. But let's finish off Marcus here. So he converts to Catholicism, and obviously taking perhaps the biggest job at the most high-profile Catholic university in the country might have been a bit of a motivator for that. Uh, of course, everybody wants to fit into their new job, right? I mean, Brian Kelly magically ended up with a southern accent when he landed in Louisiana, after all. But Freeman's conversion still may not have been as big of a stretch as one may have guessed. After all, his wife Joanna is Catholic, and they were and are raising their six children in the Catholic formation as well. So, hey, keep this one in mind, too. The spouse possibly serving as a motivating factor in this equation. Now, if you went to a Notre Dame football game this year, you may have noticed something a bit different about the player's walk. For those who haven't been to a football game at Notre Dame or who aren't familiar with the player's walk, here you go. Before each home game, the players and coaches all kind of file into the stadium together. Now, during the Brian Kelly years, that was from the Goog Athletic Complex. Now, the coolest thing about the player's walk is that you kind of get this really cool access to Notre Dame. And you get to kind of slap hands with the players and coaches, wish them well. Actually, my daughter Harper was the first to give Coach Freeman a high five at the very first home game of the season. But again, the player's walk used to start at the Goog Athletic Complex during the Brian Kelly era. Now, the Goog is where you can kind of walk in and see the uh, the Heisman trophies, pardon me, and it's kind of the home football office. Now, the walk begins as players file out of the Basilica of the Sacred Hearts East Door, the God Country Notre Dame door, if you will. So if you haven't been to a Notre Dame football game, by the way, make sure you take in the players' walk, if not anything else. But this is because Coach Freeman reinstituted a special game day mass before the home contests for the football team. So now those players and coaches file out of the Basilica for the players' walk because, yes, they're just coming out of church at that point. This is per a story and interview that was printed by the Catholic News Agency. Quote, once again for home games, the team will go to mass together at the Basilica, leave through the God Country Notre Dame door, and walk across campus to Notre Dame Stadium. One of Kelly's reforms had been to reschedule the team mass for the night before games. Freeman had fond memories of attending a pregame mass he attended as a high school recruit from Huber Heights, Ohio. At a press conference marking the beginning of practice last spring, he said he was, quote, caught by surprise to learn that the team no longer followed the tradition. Marcus said, quote, It's what I remember from my recruiting trip, watching the players walk out of the Basilica on the way to the stadium. I was caught a little by surprise when we didn't do it last year, end quote. So yeah, Coach Freeman reinstituted that practice. Now, regarding his conversion to Catholicism, it was really important to Coach Freeman that he noted that he didn't do this to grandstand either. He shared, quote, I tried to keep it as private as I could. 
Obviously, when you're head coach at Notre Dame, nothing is private, end quote. To which, of course, he's exactly correct. But again, if the head coach's spiritual identity is important to you, these things mattered. If not, that's okay, too. But here's what I'd like to note at this point of the narrative. All Notre Dame head football coaches since 1931 have entered the role, whether it was Catholic or non-Catholic, and that is what they remained. Except for one, that is. When Coach Marcus Freeman converted to Catholicism in 2022, it was the first time that that had happened in 97 years. Since legendary... Irish coach Knut Rockney converted back in 1925. Let's go ahead and dig into that now. So, Knut Rockney, and this is of course pronounced with a hard K, not a soft one, by the way, was born in Voss, Norway on March 4th, 1888. Establishing a quick timeline here because I'll say it till I'm blue in the face that context is always important, he emigrated to Chicagoland when he was five years old with his family. After he graduated from high school, he actually entered the workforce for four years as a mail dispatcher for the Chicago Post Office. So he enters Notre Dame as a freshman in 1910, and many don't realize that he was actually already 22 years old. I bring this up intentionally because I noticed that after a couple social media posts about George Gipp, People were really surprised that he was almost 26 when he died. And yes, he was still a Notre Dame student when he did die. And I was asked if that was common for the day to have older college students. The answer is yes, but probably wasn't any more common than it is today. I think the difference is whereas today we think of traditional college age, 18 to 22, as kind of more rigid. I don't think people thought about it like that then. You went to college when you went to college, and whether you did or not, it wasn't unusual, and when you did, it wasn't unusual either. So, Rockney starred for the Notre Dame football team from 1910 through 1913. The final season, he and teammate Gus Duray helped revolutionize the forward pass in that infamous game against Army. He graduated that following spring, summer actually at that time, in 1914, with a degree in chemistry in pharmacology. Well, Rock was a smart cookie, obviously. But he then took a job as an assistant coach on the staff of his former head coach and mentor, Jess Harper. To help make ends meet, of course, assistant college football coaches weren't paid very much at this time, he also taught chemistry at Notre Dame. He became the head coach of the Notre Dame football team in 1918 and began promptly winning football games at a percentage unseen in school history. Though Notre Dame football was a national player in the college landscape before, their popularity exploded with the innovative tactics of Rockney. By 1925, he had coached multiple national championships, whether claimed or unclaimed. He had coached the Four Horsemen, of course, and the aforementioned George Gipp. Through 1924, Rockney had identified and was a practicing Lutheran, a denomination not wholly unlike Catholicism in a number of respects. That is what he practiced, his parents practiced, his grandparents practiced, you get it. The Church of Norway, which of course is where Rockney hailed from, is effectively Lutheran, if I understand correctly. According to Wikipedia, nearly 69% 
of Norwegians are Lutheran. It is the prevailing religion, the prevailing denomination of Rockne's homeland, and that is something that he carried with him to America and carried with him through his first decade and a half at Notre Dame. But speaking of decade and a half, by 1925, Rockne had indeed spent 15 years at the university. And according to Michael R. Steele's Knut Rockne, a portrait of a Notre Dame legend, he writes the following, quote, He had respected the Catholicism of the large majority of his players. He also encouraged his Protestant brethren to be team leaders as well. But even in their team prayers, they reverted to the use of Catholic prayers in team meetings, pregame preparations, and the like. Over the years of his career, Rockne had thus been heavily exposed to the values and practices of Roman Catholicism. End quote. So there was actually an essay published years after his death called Crossing the Goal Line, which he was actually credited with writing, though again, it was published a few years after his death, but Rockne also talked about observing the majority of his players as they pulled into town on road games. These are Rockne's own words, quote, I used to be impressed by the sight of my players receiving Holy Communion every morning, and finally, I made it a point to go to Mass with them on the morning of the game. I realized that it appeared more or less incongruous when we arrived in town for a game for the general public to see my boys rushing off to church as soon as they got off the train while their coach rode to a hotel and took his ease. So, for the sake of appearance, if nothing else, I made it a point to go to church with the boys on the morning of the game. End quote. So again, again, here's some more Rockney's words from that essay. Quote, Although they probably did not realize it, these youngsters were making a powerful impression on me with their piety and devotion. And when I saw all of them walking to the communion rail to receive and realized the several hours of sleep they had sacrificed in order to do this, I understood for the first time what a powerful ally their religion was to those boys in their work on the football field. Then, it was then that I really began to see the light, to know what was missing in my life. And later on, I had the great pleasure of joining my boys on the communion rail, end quote. The communion rail would have been the train or the trolley, whatever it would have been that the Catholic boys would have jumped on to go to church. So that's when he says communion rail, that's what he meant. But these are all very good points, of course, but... Something that Mr. Steele and Rockne himself might have temporarily forgotten while writing their book and essay respectively. Rockne's wife, Bonnie, was also a practicing Catholic. Canute was a proud husband and father, and undoubtedly, Bonnie played a heavy role in his interest in converting. Though you can't openly speculate, of course, but it is of note that both Notre Dame head coaches who have converted had Catholic wives. While again in bad taste to openly speculate, it is worth pointing out as a bit of a trend that in both cases of coaches converting, their wives had already gone through a Catholic formation. But just as a quick note, Canute and Bonnie's children were, just as Marcus and Joanna's, uh, raised Catholic, despite at the time only having one Catholic parent.
transparent. So lo and behold, Rock began taking steps to convert to Catholicism in early 1925. He enlisted the help of his close friend and spiritual advisor, Father Vincent Mooney, to take him through the Catholic Catechism and his conversion process. And I thought this was too funny here. In 1957, a Notre Dame journalism student named John McMahon did some research and wrote a feature on Rockne's conversion for the school paper. And he penned the following, quote, Father Mooney said Rock learned his religion by knowing football. He had the seven sacraments for a line and a backfield consisting of faith, hope, and charity, and the all-American quarterback, justice, end quote. Rockney reputedly passed the catechism with flying colors. I'd also like to mention that, like Coach Freeman, he didn't do this to grandstand. Rockney, who is a big-time promoter and even self-promoter, actually, believe it or not, didn't tell everyone and their brother that this is what he was doing, that this is how he was spending what little free time he had converting to Catholicism. In fact, only two people knew initially, Bonnie and Father Mooney, as you'd guess. He'd pick out his sponsors, whom we'll talk about just here in a second. But after completing his studies, his baptism was set for November 20th, 1925. At the time, Rock was 37 years old and had won 64 of his eventual 105 games for Notre Dame at this time. November 20th was the Friday before Notre Dame was to take on Northwestern that season. Rock's conversion and baptism was a big deal across campus after the word had finally gotten out that it was happening. In fact, several of Rockney's players had actually caught wind of it and insisted that they be in attendance. Imagine, though, how cool that would have been for the players who were Catholic at that time. For more reasons than one, mind you. Because please remember, this is 1925. And during the mid-1920s, anti-Catholic sentiment was running very high across the country. The Ku Klux Klan were thriving across America with a strong anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant platform. So Rock, by converting to Catholicism, would have actually made thousands upon thousands of enemies near instantly for this. His team, due to this national climate, already had a bit of a bullseye on their backs from a large portion of the country as a result. Rockney was a resolute leader, though, and he'd always lead from the front of the ranks. So aside from him feeling like this was the right thing for him to do personally, converting to Catholicism, that is, imagine his players thinking, man, our coach has our back. Anyway, some of the players again learned that Rockney was to be baptized Catholic and they insisted that they should be there. But in true Rock fashion, he said, quote, So they want to be at my baptism. What do they think this is? A three ring circus? Tell them to go home and say their prayers. End quote. <laughs> now, if you know much about Rock, that line absolutely drips of Rockney. But alas, uh, with his sponsor, neighbor Tom Hinkey, with him, he was baptized that day at the Log Chapel on campus. So, I always do this, but next time you're on campus and you're walking around and you see that Log Chapel, remember that day, November 20th, 
1925. That was the day that Rockne was baptized in that very spot. The only ones present for the Mass were, of course, Canute himself, Bonnie, Father Mooney, and his sponsors, the Hickeys, Tom and his wife, Kate, who were also Canute Jr.'s godparents, as it were. But the next morning, November 21st, 1925, Coach Rockney received his first communion. Later that afternoon, his boys beat Northwestern 13-10, which ran their record on the season to 7-1-1. The Irish would win multiple championships in the remaining years of Rockney's tenure as coach. And speaking of tenure, when Coach Rockney's tenure as head football coach at Notre Dame undid very unexpectedly and untimely in March of 1931 when he was killed in a plane crash. When the wreckage was parsed through, the remains of Rockney's left hand reputedly still clutched a rosary. About 50 years after Rockney's death, one of his former players and kind of a show hero, honestly, Chet Grant, was asked about Rockney. And I'm including this quote because I do think it is very indicative of the kind of person Rockney was, regardless of whether he was Catholic or converted to Catholicism or all of that. But Chet Grant, again, played for Rockney. He covered Rockney in the local South Bend Tribune, and he coached with many other guys who played for Rockney and coached with Rockney. He became the program's first de facto historian, Chet Grant. I guess it's just the man. I got, I got an episode about him uh, from, I believe, last year. Please listen to it if you have a chance. He, he was fantastic and just a true program advocate, but just a wise man. If there's ever a Notre Dame savant, it was Chet Grant. But he says the following about Coach Rockney. He says, quote, I would say his most important trait, if trait's the right word for it, he was the very essence of dedication. He was a humble man. In humility, humility, there is strength. That's my association with Rock. He could have all kinds of human failings. Hasty temper on occasions. But humility saved him. An example would be having some difficulty with a particular player and he would either throw the player off the squad or the player would quit. Now, if the player didn't show up on a Monday after a game, and again, Rockney would then send somebody, an emissary, to invite him to come back. And you know, those guys saved a lot of face from that. Well, there it was, a Christian attitude. I don't think the term was used in his mind at all. It was just the way he was. If he were afflicted with false pride, he wouldn't do that. He might have hurt both of them, by holding a grudge, end quote. That Chet Grant interview actually is from the afterword of that Michael Steele, Knut Rockne, a portrait of a Notre Dame legend book. And it's great hearing Chet Grant in his own words talk about his time at Notre Dame and luminaries like Knut Rockne. And I'll be right back with a quick show wrap. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm 
kind of proud of how that all kind of wound and wove together a little bit to make a cohesive episode. I gotta say thank you once again to Andy Nickel for the idea, and hopefully I did the story justice. It was a lot of fun to put together and contemplate and investigate, because honestly, here's the thing about it is Notre Dame does love its heroes to be Catholic. Aside from Gip, who we of course just talked about ad nauseum, who converted... Another exception was Rockney's best player in George Gipp. Now, Gipp was also raised Lutheran Protestant, and so that was one of the reasons actually why I think Rockney and Gipp really kind of hit it off. They were both a little bit older, and they both went to college a little bit older. Rockney wasn't that much older than Gipp, honestly. And of course, they were both Protestant, again, in a very Catholic-laden university. But after Gip got really sick in December of 1920, well, I'll actually just head over to The Gipper by Jack Cavanaugh and lift this quote directly from it. Quote, After putting a hand on Gip's forehead and saying goodbye, an ashen-faced Rockney left Gip's room. Family members, having been told that the end was near, then gathered around Gip and remained for the rest of the evening as Gip continued to lapse in and out of a coma. During the evening, Father Pat Haggerty made his fifth visit of the day to Gip's bedside and, with Gip conscious again, prayed over him. In the early hours of the next morning, Tuesday, December 14th, with Gip now in a deep coma, Father Haggerty, at Gip's prior request, he would say later, gave Gip conditional baptism and conditional absolution, which, in effect, converted him to Catholicism, end quote. And over the years, actually, there have been a number of folks who have questioned not only the authenticity of the story, but also the legitimacy of the conversion itself. Frankly, none of it really matters to me, I'll be honest. And this is fun to talk about, and it's fun to share identities with people. As we know, we like to surround ourselves with people with a shared identity. In this case, we're talking about Catholicism or, uh, you know, otherwise on any other day during the show, we're talking about having a shared identity as Notre Dame football fans or people who love Notre Dame football history. But, you know, at the end of the day, Catholic or not, religious or not, Notre Dame football fan or not, you know, we all come up short and we all hope that we are just blessed with another day where we can try to become the best version of, of ourselves and to treat folks as we hope to be treated ourselves. So I'd like to thank everybody for tuning into this particular episode, number 74 in Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast history. A little bit different of an episode, but I try to make them all a little bit different after all. This one was a lot different, though, in the sense that we talked about religion and converting from one sect of a religion to another sect of a religion. So I suppose this is one of those episodes that wouldn't make me very popular at a Thanksgiving dinner or a social event or something like that. But nonetheless, it was a very, very I think fascinating chapter, a fascinating event to happen in Notre Dame lore and a fascinating parallel to liken our current head coach, Marcus Freeman, to perhaps the best college football coach of all time. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed putting it all together. And I'd like to thank the Consensus All-Americans once again, Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, 
and Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, for their support and keeping us on the air. Thank you to WCScreens.com for keeping us on the air as well, and Joseph Rakish for the theme song, Canute Rockney. I hope all have enjoyed this. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, signing off on episode number 74. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.